0: You're listening to the Bridge Christian Fellowship Message Archive. We meet Sundays at 10.30 a.m. in Seattle. For more information, visit thebridgeseattle.org. Today's message is The Good Life, The Poor in Spirit, the second in our series on the Beatitudes, by Pastor Dan Damron, given on July 9, 2017. The scripture reading comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1-12. through 12. for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you.
1: So, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, I do want to take a brief moment and make a note on the kingdom of heaven versus the world. Um, like last week, uh, when we make this distinction, we're not talking about the old pie in the sky idea, where we are whisked away, um, and, and going back to uh, a verse we read last week in, in John, when Jesus is praying, he says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. But he also says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So, the kingdom is here. It's at hand. It's in us. And the coming part of the kingdom, the not yet part of the now but not yet, descends and transforms and restores the earth. It doesn't send us away uh, as cool as uh, the Horsehead Nebula is, which is gonna be the background of a slide later. That's not where we end up. Where we end up is, is here in the New Jerusalem, a, a city of people on earth with bodies. This isn't a, uh, this isn't a Gnostic, kind of dualism. So, the world, as, as Jesus uses it in this um, in this talk, in the Sermon on the Mount, serves as a metonymy that represents the ruling cultural ethic and paradigm, not a battle between spirit and matter. So, we are not called to leave the world, or originally hold ourselves aloof from its society. This isn't a call to uh, the extreme, crazy kind of asceticism, uh, like, uh, like the guys who used to sit for years on top of a pole um, or in, in a little box. Um, but rather, it's a call to adhere to the model and mission of Christ in contrast to that of our surrounding culture. That said, let's look at, uh, at the Beatitudes and this first Beatitude. A.W. Pink says, It is indeed blessed to observe how this servant opens. Christ began not by pronouncing maledictions on the wicked, but benedictions on his people. I think it's important uh, to follow Jesus' example here in being for something rather than against something. Now, being for one thing kind of logically implies, generally, being against something else, but it, it is a posture of being positively for something rather than negatively against something else. Uh, Another thing as we frame this, uh, I want to say, and I will say this many times uh, in the next half hour, this passage is not about being materially poor. This is not about a lack of funds or resources. But God is concerned about and takes up the cause of the poor. Bono, the singer from U2, was the speaker at uh, the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C., a few years back, and he said, I mean, God may well be with us in our mansions on the hill. I hope so, since he has a pretty impressive mansion. He may, be will, he may well be with us in all manner of controversial stuff. Maybe, maybe not. But the one thing we can all agree, all faiths and ideologies, is that God is with the vulnerable and the poor. And he goes on to quote Isaiah, 58, 9 through 11. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am, if you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. And make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. We see throughout scripture that God particularly mentions the plight of the poor, the orphan, and the widow. So even though that's not the focus of our passage this morning, it's not not what this is about. That said, I want to move to the fallacy of holy poverty. Uh, it's it's a pretty easy thing to fall into. Um, we have the example of uh, St. Francis of Assisi, who I don't think necessarily was uh, uh, prey to this fallacy himself, but all of his followers, uh, well not all, a lot of his followers seem to be. that, By the mere fact of not having stuff, that somehow they were gaining virtue. Uh, I think this, this comes a lot of times from misapplying some scriptures. So one of, the, one of the favorite scriptures to misapply in this area is the story of what we often call the rich young ruler although it doesn't say ruler in the passage, but um, later in Matthew, uh, it, it says that this, this guy came to Jesus, and he said, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, hey, you know the commandments. And he said, yeah, I've been trying to do those. And Jesus doesn't argue with him. Jesus doesn't say, well, yeah, sure you've been trying to do them. He, he says, it says he looked at him, and he loved him, and he said, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then follow me. And the guy um, says the guy went away sad because he was very rich. And then Jesus says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. A lot of people have taken this to say, oh, it's hard for the rich. So the rich are bad and they can't enter the kingdom, uh, so we should all be poor. Um, two things about the context of that that should, be, uh, should stand out to us. One, the apostles are surprised uh, when he says this because it is their thought that, that earthly riches are a sign of God's blessing. So their reaction is if even the rich can't get in the kingdom, how are the poor going to get into the kingdom? They're not, they're not setting up this dichotomy. Uh, and I also think, and I'll talk more about this in a little bit, uh, I think it's very significant that Matthew puts that encounter right after uh, the encounter where people bring children to come to be blessed by Jesus, the the apostles say, hey, Jesus is way too important and busy to deal with your kids. And Jesus says, nope, let the kids come to me. So we'll talk about that more in a bit. But I think taking an encounter that Jesus has with, with one person with a certain set of issues and then blanketing across and saying, alright, everybody sell everything, uh, in the face of all kinds of other evidence. Another story that gets taken this way is the story of Zacchaeus, who, when he uh, encounters Jesus, he says, I'm going to give uh, all the stuff that I've stolen back, and I'm going to give, a, a, I think it's a quarter, now I should have looked that up more specifically, a quarter of all that I own to the poor. And so, yeah, it's another thing. Here's a rich guy, and all rich guys are crooks, and so if you have stuff, you got to give it away. Again, this that's a totally specific thing to Zacchaeus's problems. In contrast to that, you have uh, James and John, who are not super rich, but they are, in their context, pretty well off, and they are two of the three of Jesus' closest uh, friends in his time of um, earthly ministry. They have uh, their their father has more than one boat in a fishing business. Uh, John during Jesus' trial, is able to walk right into the high priest's house. So he's got uh, kind of political and social connections. You also have uh, Matthew, who was a tax collector, doesn't recount, even though he was uh, even more central to the story, that Jesus said, oh, you got to get rid of everything. There were no poor tax collectors in uh, first century Rome. That's not why you went into that. So there are all kinds of... um, There are all kinds of other examples of people who had material wealth who were not called to divest themselves of it. Um, We see that Peter is doing fairly well also. He's able to host everybody at his house and uh, and with his mother-in-law. He talks about several women who supported the ministry out of their um, resources. In my own journey, um, I held rather strongly to the concept of holy poverty for a long time. my family, when I was born, was in the middle of what I would call self-induced poverty. My dad was a hippie, and he wanted to drop out of society. So uh, the one thing where it wasn't really poverty is they saved up money. They bought five acres in the middle of nowhere, um, out on the peninsula. And we were there, and when I was a very small child, we were living on 50 to to $100 a month. And you can only do that when you actually own property also. But yeah, and they, you know, trying to trying to farm a little garden plot and build a house out of trees that he cut down off the hill. So, um, so I, I very much had this ingrained from my very beginnings idea that this is what is good and virtuous, and the people in those cities and those banks and everything, they are bad. And uh, that developed in my, through my adolescence, and when I started doing ministry, uh, a lot of you have heard this story. When I had uh, I'd done an internship for college ministry and I felt like I was supposed to do that professionally, and when I had my time of decision, I was like, I said these exact words All right, God, I'll do it. I don't need to have a nice car. I don't ever need to have a house. I don't need to get married. In my mind, to serve God meant that you, you, you couldn't have any of those things. Um, What I developed into believing instead is that the important thing is to have enough to do what best advances the mission of the kingdom, and the salient point is to remember whose stuff it is really. So again, A.W. Pink writes, there's a vast difference between this, the concept of being poor in spirit, and being hard up in our circumstances. There is no virtue, and often no disgrace, in financial poverty as such, nor does it in of itself produce humility of heart. For anyone who has any real acquaintance with both classes soon discovers there is just as much pride in the indigent as there is in the opulent. This poverty of spirit is a fruit that grows on no merely natural tree." We can't automatically identify earthly poverty with Being poor in spirit, just as we can't um, uh, directly identify what we would call earthly blessings with uh, true blessing. So Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he says this directly against the culture of his day that would say, Blessed are the rich, for theirs is the kingdom of the kingdom, theirs is the the whole world. J.R. Dumolo writes, the Greeks thought that the blessed life, this is something that they wrote about in their philosophy as well, was possible only for a few. They're not even bothering to try to come up with something that works for everybody. It's impossible for slaves, for the diseased, for the poor, and for those to die young, to even have a a shot at the blessed life. I think the the best way I could boil down our culture's approach to it is is blessed, or how fortunate are you if you're self-sufficient, If you have your life under control and you don't need anybody else. And that's that's where this branch is beyond just just money. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, This is something, being poor in spirit, that is not only not admired by the world, it is despised by it. You will never find a greater antithesis to the worldly spirit and outlook than that which you find in this verse. What emphasis the world places on its belief in self-reliance, self-confidence, and self-expression. Almost everything in our society is about advancement, security, sufficiency. Even the reactions against kind of the materialism and uh, over-focus on achievement in our society, I, I think betray a, a core acceptance of that concept. So, too easily mistaken uh, ideas that we would mistake as being against it, but are just another subtle form of it. My dad, when he decided to, to drag my mom into the wilderness, uh, he was like, yeah, I'm getting back to the land, and uh, we're not gonna be material, we're not gonna be part of institutions, but really what he was doing is saying, I have found my way to be self-sufficient. I don't even need the rest of humanity. What, what he really wanted, and he's, he said this in recounting his thought process, What he wanted was to be in the woods with his wife and his kids and see no other humans. It's the essence of saying, I want control. I want to be in charge of everything that affects me. So even though we were poor, I mean, you couldn't even do that in today's dollars and, uh, and cost of living thing. We were super poor, but his whole idea was to have everything he needed as opposed to relying on anyone else, a big movement that you see, almost ironically, pop up in glossy magazines and, and on websites is the simple living uh, movement. So you know, hey, everybody, clean out the 17 pounds of extra stuff that you bought this year and never even opened out of your closets and have simple living. But again, even this even this concept, so our tiny houses. Uh, Uh, minimalist uh, approach to possessions. Again, it's that same focus on on being self-sufficient. It's being not controlled by your possessions so that you can be in control, so that you're not driven by that. The central focus is on control and self-sufficiency. Citizens of the kingdom of God, though, which is what those who follow Jesus are called to be, what we claim to be, What we are supposed to know is that we don't have control of our lives, that we need God, and we need other people. I remember, and I don't know if this is a significant moment in some of your lives, some of you are rather young, but uh, in the weeks that followed 9-11, there was a brief moment where Americans as a whole I mean, nothing really changed. It didn't have a lasting impact on American culture, but for that brief time of weeks or maybe a couple of months, people understood, oh, wait a minute. The state of the world and our place in it is not that of being totally secure and getting anything I want. And that shook a lot of people because apparently they had never looked around at the things that that happen daily. Or they said that those, you know, The vagaries of fate will not affect me or the ones that I love. That's that's other people. Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, he says that this verse at once condemns every idea of the Sermon on the Mount, which thinks of it in terms of something that you and I can do ourselves, something that you and I can carry out. We start with this beatitude before the rest of the beatitudes, before the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, so that we know we can only... Uh, encounter Jesus, we can only enter the kingdom of God, we can only understand the rest of the things that he calls us to if we do it from a posture of not having it all and not being able to have it all. Now what poor in spirit doesn't mean is false humility. and You see plenty of that uh, in the American church. I don't know about other churches. I haven't spent a lot of time overseas Uh, but we see a lot of what I call vulnerability as a weapon you know, where people are like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm not one of those highfalutin people. I'm not, I don't know too much, you know, so everybody kind of pay attention to me as, I, you know, uh, I a, my friend Paul used to say whenever you'd give him a, a compliment, he'd go, oh, no, 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 oh, stop, oh, stop. Um, so, I mean, there's a reason that we call that false humility. It also does not mean a victimhood mentality, which... Is a- another uh, kind of tricky reaction to the uh, to the dog eat dog get ahead uh, idea of our culture. Uh, I remember a few years back when the when the Occupy Wall Street thing was happening, and they're all the I am the ninety nine percent on cars and and in yards. Um, I am the ninety nine percent signs in the yards of million dollar plus homes on Queen Anne. Oh yeah, I mean. I suppose, mathematically speaking, yes, you do not compare with Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, but you have a million-dollar house, and you have two Mercedes in the parking in your driveway. You really think you're a victim here? Um, or, for those who actually are not doing very well, uh, if the mentality is not about, boy, I'm in rough straits, and I need help, but a, a focus on how... I'm being wronged by this, or I really deserve that, or it's these guys' fault. And if only they would fall, then I, then my life would be better. That's not what being poor in spirit means. What being poor in spirit is similar to is what they talk about in addiction therapies: the the moment of clarity, realizing what your situation really is, realizing that you don't have a way out on your own. So. Uh, in what's often called the parable of the prodigal son, in I got a lot of little tabs here, um, in Luke 15, um, the son who has who has taken his his share of the inheritance and he's blown it all, um, finds himself sitting in a pigsty, says. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Up until this point, this guy thought he had a plan. He thought he had it figured out. He thought he knew what was going to work for him. And it wasn't until that moment when he came to his senses that he understood his status in the world. Another way of looking at this is a concept of of coming like a child. So, in the one that was right before... um, Right before the encounter with uh, what we call the rich young ruler. It says, Then the children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them. So what's what's significant about the children? Why did the, the disciples just not like kids? No, what's, some, what's significant is that kids are not important. Kids don't give you stuff. They don't gain you uh, influence. They don't bring resources. Um, there's an interesting thing uh, well, I'm going to say in Chinese culture, maybe it's just in Taishan culture, but um, when my kids were born, my Chinese relatives didn't come for a month, uh, and I and I think where that comes from, at least in the in the area that they're from, is you, you don't know if they're going to make it. So so let's not take a trip and visit a baby if the, if they're not going to make it. But after a month or two, you know, then you can then you can think. So that's that's the concept in the ancient world here, like. They might not even make it why are we going to spend time on people who uh, who may not reach adulthood and so I think that's why it's significant that that story comes right before the story of this of this rich guy so in the minds of the apostles at that time they're saying hey we are we are building something here this guy's great he's got a lot of money um, there's the implication in tradition at least that he had uh, you know that they call him a ruler that he's got some kind of Uh, political stature. This is the guy we need. We don't need them dumb kids. We need the rich guys. We need the people of influence. But Jesus says, if you're going to enter the kingdom, you enter only as a child. Uh, A chapter earlier in Matthew, at the beginning of chapter 18, it says, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. When we're at a store or when we see a commercial on TV, my kids often are like, hey, can we have that? And I used to always say to Jake, well, you can buy it with your money. And he would always say, I don't have any money. When I need something, you you have to get it for me. Now he's got a little bit of money, uh, and occasionally he thinks he can he can buy things. You know, so he's got five bucks, and he he's like, "Oh, that's a cool new Xbox game. I got five dollars on me." No, it's you're not you're not even close, buddy. Um, so we we see that transition where he's he's starting already to uh, fall into the trap of our society. Well, I have five bucks now, and if I uh, get a credit card and I can get that game and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Ivy, on the other hand, whenever I say, well, you know, we'll buy it with your money, she, she just like does a little fake hand motion, put like she's putting money in my hand, and she thinks we're square. Um, my my aunt Helen was up from California over the Fourth of July, and uh, and she has a handful of stories she always likes to tell about me. And her favorite one is that when we would we were visiting down in L.A. when she was like a hotshot interior designer, so she. She took me to the store to, to get a new outfit, and she said, well, which one do you want? And I said, both. Um, and not that that is a great attitude about materialist stuff, but what, it, what is great about it is that's how we should be approaching God. We say, hey, you're the one with the resources. Uh, what, you, what you choose to, to give me is what I get, because I don't have any money, not in that sense. So what do we do? Um, if it's not just about material wealth, what do we do with material wealth? I, I think the first thing we have to think about when it comes to actual money or actual possessions is is to separate ourselves from thinking about how much. So, a friend of mine, fresh out of college, got a job at Intel and suddenly had money like he had never known before. Um, you know, it, it, his parents were not poor, but they were not, uh, um, they were civil servants uh, in a small town. And now, suddenly as a single guy who had been living um, in what was then a very sketchy part of the district, now suddenly he's got these big checks. And, and it gave him almost an existential crisis. He's like, what am I doing with this money? Why, why you know, why did I get this job? Well, you know, What's the purpose of all this? Um, and he he almost felt like he shouldn't be doing it. like he he didn't deserve it. On the other hand, maybe you find yourselves in a spot where where you don't have enough. Um, you know there was a there was a point, and I, I'm not advocating this. I'm just telling a story. <laughs> I went for a year and a half of my college on revolving credit cards. I would get the no interest credit card and I would do a balance transfer from the uh, last couple of quarters and then I would pay for the next quarter. And then when the no interest period ran out, I would transfer that to a new, new credit card. I was on shaky ground there for a while. So if you're in a spot like that, and you're like, oh, what do I do? It's not about having way more than you ever thought you would have. It's not about being in more financial trouble than you think you are. It's about whose stuff it is and who is in control of it. So, in Luke 12, starting verse 22, Jesus says to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If, then, you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, How much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink to be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. It's about understanding uh, where we stand. That when we have a lot, it could be gone. When we have a little, God is still going to provide for us. A good friend of mine has been involved... Uh, in outreach in Liberia for many years. And what they keep having is uh, kind of leaders in the community that they've built up over there, um, looking for sponsorship to, to come to the U.S. And I think if only they could get to the U.S. and all the, and all the money we have, that their problems would be solved. And one of their most prominent leaders won the, won the visa lottery a few years back, moved to the States, um, despite his kind of community leader status over there, was really only eligible by, uh, you know, none of his training over there was considered to be of value or sufficient, so he became a janitor over here. He was making 10 times as much as he was making in Liberia, but because of the standard living and because of the fact that he was trying to send money back to his family, he was living in a studio apartment by himself, separated from his family, and when all was said and done, nobody's standard of living has changed in his family, except for the fact that he's halfway around the world from them. So he chased this illusion of prosperity for his family, and instead only got separation from them. We need to remember uh, whose resources they are and what it's for. In the height of my holy poverty period, My dad became really good friends with a guy named Jack Thomas, and Jack was a very successful insurance salesman, not, you know, very successful and insurance, two things that I was not uh, really into at that time, and uh, Jack had a pool table in his house, they had a condo out at the beach, and I was like, how does this, how does this work, how does your uh, very public and, and actually very Genuine in-person pursuit of Christ mesh with having this stuff. Uh, and, you know, he as a person was a big part of my leaving behind holy poverty as a, as a theology, because what I saw is that he held all of that very loosely. He had left an even more lucrative uh, business career to go into insurance because he felt called into it that as he talked about life insurance with people, that that was a chance to have conversations about life and death, uh, and to be uh, present in people's lives when a loved one did die. And his, his condo at the beach was a place that he offered up to people, uh, whether it was just friends for time to get away, when missionaries were in town for some place for them to stay, everything that he had he held with an open hand toward the mission of the kingdom. My my parents' church, a little church of about 150 people in Montesano, Washington, uh, because of the exchange rate, is able to support about 40 churches in the bush country of Uganda. When we look at what we have, you know, compared compared to a lot of churches, uh, it'd be very easy for that church to say, "Hey." You know, we're not very big, we don't have a ton of resources. Um, We we can't take on something like that. But their relatively small uh, amount of resources by U.S. standards becomes a giant amount of resources by Ugandan standards, and they hold it with an open hand for the kingdom. I don't know what each of us has to offer in terms of material goods, but one thing that we I think can all offer is hospitality. What, whatever our situation is, if we invite other people into it. The core issue with this beatitude is the concept of self-sufficiency. And that's not what we are supposed to be focused on as followers of Christ. We don't have self-sufficiency, we have Christ's sufficiency An old hymn says, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Can you come to Jesus like a child? Not as an equal player, not as somebody who's ever going to be an equal player. Also, not as somebody who thinks that they are owed anything, but just as his kid. Given everything as gift that you'll never be able to repay. Nothing in this world is sure. Nothing is secure except for him. If you're doing well financially right now, the markets can fail. We've seen it before. You may be sitting here right now with fatal disease. We don't know. A good friend of a lot of us uh, in his early 20s suddenly diagnosed with lymphoma. You know, who would have thought? Your looks, your voice, your vertical leap, your mind, they're all going to go sooner or later. Some of us going faster than others. There was a guy in <laughs> <laughs> there was a guy in South Carolina who was hit by a plane crash. He wasn't flying in a plane. he was jogging and the plane crashed into him. That could happen to you. So whatever plans you have, there's a lot of small planes in Seattle. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, the old thing, you could be hit by a bus. Not just hit by a bus. You could have a plane crash into you. In 2013, there was a giant meteorite that exploded in the air in central Russia. Nobody died, but over a thousand people were injured. And building you know, The windows blowing out of buildings. Cars crashing. So anything could happen to you. Or, um, for those on the older side, even worse than anything happened to you, you could outlive your kids. What are you going to do with that? When the hope of the of the ancient world, you know, I know I'm not going to go on, but at least I'll have my progeny. What, what happens when that's taken away? The only thing that we can have security or sufficiency in is in Jesus. And so what being poor in spirit means is just having an accurate view of the universe and our place in it, and thereby coming as a child to Jesus. So, we have our questions that we're going to just take a, a minute uh, in, in this setting to think about, and then hopefully you'll think about uh, a bit as we go through the week. Um, and they're real short and straightforward this week. How do you think you're doing at being poor in spirit? What is your, uh, where are you on that spectrum of thinking that you're self sufficient or not? And since I don't think any of us, uh, on any of the Beatitudes is going to say, oh yeah, I've just completely nailed that. Um, Let's think about when we aren't doing so well in that, what things are you prone to rely on instead of God? So is it your bank account? Is it your looks? Is it your health? Um, So yeah, let's take a minute, think about that, and I'll wrap up and we'll move on. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and only theirs. We can't buy shares, we can't rent to own, we can't barter or work our way up. We can only come as children, but we can come as children to a loving Father. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that that you welcome us in, that even as our illusions of self-control or self-sufficiency are stripped away, that you offer us um, everything that we need as gift. So I pray that you'd help us uh, to not get caught up in, in protecting ourselves or trying to get ours, but uh, that you would you would give us faith that you are protecting us, that you are providing all that we need. And if we seek your kingdom, every day-to-day need that we have will be taken care of.
0: Thanks for listening to today's message. To find out more about The Bridge, or to listen to any message from our complete archive, visit thebridgeseattle.org.